Welcome to the Daily Texans Politics and Pints, where every day we do our best to stray further from God's light. I'm Editor-in-Chief Alexander Chase. And I'm Forum Editor Jordan Chenhar. Today, in our best efforts to do our only, only work on this earth, we bring to you tales of the 71st day of Hillary Rodham Clinton's presidency. The investigations into the private email server um, have continued unabated since Inauguration Day, with uh, Oversight Committee Leader Jason Chaffetz continuing to dog the Clinton administration with uh, subpoena after subpoena into emails that may or may not exist. Chaffetz has vowed that the, the efforts will continue throughout the first term, leaving the Senate without a whole lot to do in their, in their stead. Senator Ted Cruz, knowing full well that he will lose his re-election bid to Beto O'Rourke, has looked into starting up a children's book company, which he will title Redfish, after his uh, filibuster on the Senate floor. He's found that he quite likes it, which is really strange for someone who has murdered so many people, uh, that he may enjoy children, the gift of life. Who would have known? Not so sure about Ted Cruz enjoying children. I really don't know if I can keep this much much longer. It's an incredibly boring April Fool's joke, which... <laughs> <laughs> Why are you listening to us? <laughs> don't you have better parts of the internet to scroll your attention into on this worst day of the internet? Anyways, we, we bring you back to reality here. It's, it's a lot more interesting, and there's a lot, mes- lot less J- Jason Chaffetz. Uh, probably a good thing. But a lot more Devin Nunes, which is definitely not a good thing. Are they the same person? I've never seen them in the same room at the same time together. Um, I would hope that someone has, considering they're both supposed to work in the same room at the same time. Supposed to, being the operative word there. See, reality is so much more interesting than alternative reality. You know, I hope that you can tell Elon Musk that. Uh, but or here, alternative reality is so much more interesting than reality, and we just happen to be in alternative reality. In any case, I'm almost glad that we've been able to spend the past 10 weeks talking about President Trump rather than President Clinton in the sense that we have something to talk about. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we would have talked about some things. I'm sure there would have been some obstructionism. Um, I was very proud that our paper published uh, that it was the 69th day of the Trump presidency a couple of days ago because, I mean, one, who's counting is a bad question, and two, um, we got to be able to say that something nice has happened. So, pausing. Was that you, Sam? Yeah. So, yes. So, we'll thank our podcast director, Sam Groves, for pointing that in his column from this week. And uh, with that, I think that we are duly responsible to discuss uh, yet more of the uh, dystopic fiction that not even Noah M. Horowitz could write that we live in. So, where do we start? Do do we do we care about tax reform? Does anyone care about tax reform? I I wish we could care about tax reform. If the Republicans wanted to start start caring about tax reform, then I'd love to jump into tax reform. But it doesn't really seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. They are still getting over their breakup with the AHCA. It's taking them some time. Yeah, yeah. I I think that we should spend a couple minutes, but in a sort of linear progression, uh, it looks more like Gorsuch is going to be the GOP's. Um, next target or should be probably their rebound yeah i mean they did take an l last week they really need to bounce back yeah and gorsuch is a pretty good way to bounce back he's i mean solid checks off all the boxes generally agreeable um he's not gonna like 
excite anybody that much, but he he can get the the whole coalition back on the right track. And I think one of the biggest things about all of this uh, is that it seems as though Republicans care a whole lot more about the Supreme Court than Democrats do because they're the ones fighting to hopefully undo a lot of the things that have happened, like same-sex marriage, Roe v. Wade. Mainly Roe v. Wade at this point. I mean, Gorsuch said that he wasn't going to touch um, Obergefell, the same-sex marriage case. But the, the legacy of judicial activism largely stems back to the Earl Warren Court of the, of the 1960s. And... So historically, that's given Republicans um, the upper hand in arguing that liberal justices tend to have more of an activist bent, uh, tend to legislate from the bench, and that the original um, purpose of the Supreme Court is best upheld by conservative jurists, which is interesting because there's, I mean, Democrats could argue, if they were so inclined, that there's been plenty of legislating from the bench from the conservative perspective, most notably D.C. versus Heller, the um, a case that, a landmark decision that struck down a lot of gun control regulations yeah. on Second Amendment grounds. It's almost as if we've been living in a DC versus Heller world for so long that nobody even is willing to challenge the fact that you can own a handgun constitutionally at this point. I mean, it's fine by me personally. It's more about the, the fact that Roe v. Wade has been in place for over 40 years at this point, and Republicans still cited as an example of judicial activism, whereas Democrats haven't really capitalized on the Heller decision. They focused they focused a lot more of their efforts on Citizens United and the idea that uh, Republican-nominated judges are going to be more uh, in favor of large corporations. I mean, you saw some of this in Gorsuch's hearing. Uh, Diane Feinstein and other Democratic senators tried to paint him as no friend of the little guy, uh, which isn't really much of an argument against the judicial philosophy. Yeah, I... I I don't know how to interpret a lot of those. He's he's got a mixed record on a lot of uh, business law cases, um, and if we're getting into the sort of what should someone be, I mean, not being a friend of the little guy, being pro little guy, if you will, is also a bent. If you, I, I, hypothetically speaking, here we we should be looking for someone who's going to fairly enforce the law for all people, uh, regardless of how big the company that they work in is. Uh, I mean. But all that is to say that he really hasn't been outspoken one way or another. This home run pick really comes down to the fact that there's not a whole lot of substance to talk about. So Team Trump can uh, fly the W without any sort of particular uh, substance behind it, which is a big fan of theirs. And, you know, we can't just forget about the fact that uh, the essential promise of the GOP for the past seven years was not just broken, but broken in a particularly embarrassing way. So, I, I mean, I don't know where I sit on the whole filibuster topic. I I think it'd be very unwise for Senate Democrats to overplay their hand, and I'm not convinced right now that filibustering is a good call. I just would love to hear some more thoughts on that personally. But So I, I think that this seems like a pretty clear path to victory for the Republicans, and it's, it's going to be all we're going to hear about for a while. I can imagine them drawing it out just for a little bit longer just so that they can get themselves a little bit further removed from AHCA. But I think Mitch we'll McConnell said that he's hoping to have Gorsuch confirm it by next week. Uh, on the subject of the filibuster, uh, our forum this week had a, a good article on that subject by um, a local SCOTUS expert, Jordan Manigetti, that uh, made that same argument that Senate Democrats shouldn't overplay their hand because they don't really don't have any leverage on Gorsuch at all. And... Um, while it's true that Republicans might be able to get rid of the filibuster for the next Supreme Court nominee that might happen during Trump's administration, it could also be the case that Trump will have a lot m less political 
capital then than he does now, as little as he has now, and yeah. that getting rid of the filibuster then will be more difficult for Republicans than it is in, in this case. So if they want to keep the filibuster in place, then um, the argument goes Democrats should relent on Gorsuch and then just let the Trump administration run its course, uh, which will give them increasing leverage later on, especially if um, races like the legislative races, like the Georgia 6 special election, wind up turning out in Democrats' favor. Um, currently, uh, in that race, Democrat John Ossoff um, is has a pretty commanding lead in a district that uh, historically has voted Republican by 20, 30 points in presidential elections and hasn't elected a Democratic representative since the 1970s. This is a um, suburban Atlanta, which is a, a big play for, for Democrats. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that if what people like Menegetti are suggesting is true, then they're right. I, I think I just owe it to myself to uh, to absorb some more of this coverage. It, obviously, the whole thing about SCOTUS wonks is uh, they, they get a little work, or they get a lot of work every once in a while. So the amount of, like times we've been able to test something like what we're viewing right now is like practically zero. So the margin for error on SCOTUS experts is high. I mean, that said, Jordan does know what she's talking about. So as far as we can tell, that's why we ran her content on our page. And the uh, sporadic demand for SCOTUS experts is why we tried very hard to get her to write for us after not trying very hard before Gorsuch. Yes, yes, yes. Well, right. It's, it's, it's a good point and kind of runs contrary to the, pop, uh, the, the conventional wisdom that Democratic Senate leaders have been running with, which is that Republicans are going to get rid of the filibuster at some point anyway, so you might as well just go down swinging now instead of uh, capitulating on, on the Gorsuch nomination, especially because of how upset grassroots Democratic activists are over the fact that Merrick Garland didn't get a hearing at all. I mean, and obviously so. it's just going to be the case that Democrats are going to win the Senate after Ted Cruz loses his seat to Beto O'Rourke anyway, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to survive for the next hundred years, so it doesn't matter, right? I'll, yes. I'll, I'll let you take that in for a second longer if you need. No, no need. Okay. Is Beto going to win? Um, I think Beto could come within single digits. Uh, if Beto wins, then that would be quite a, a, a magnitude shift, and I, I, don't, I don't see it for this time around. I'm going to try this again. Will Beto win? No. Okay, that's all I was looking for here. <laughs> yeah, I... But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it at this point. Okay, I mean, something, something I wouldn't have bet on Lester winning the Premier League. Um, I don't know. I, I, I might throw I $5 down on, on him winning just so, uh, just so I can say that in the case that it happens, I, I get my $5 back. But uh, I, I'm, be, I'm willing to bet that at this point, throwing $5 down on him winning is uh, more likely to do something than throwing $5 down on his actual campaign fund. I... I am very suspicious of the idea that you should throw money behind anyone running for statewide election in Texas with a D next to their name, ever. Which is interesting because Texas and Georgia are demographically fairly similar in the sense that Democrats are trying to make a play for uh, 
wealthy suburbs and growing urban areas. And that's why they're so interested in the Georgia 6 race, because that's a suburban Atlanta district. That's the kind of thing that they're trying to target. Um, you can see the same thing in Texas. And Democrats have poured a lot of money into Georgia. And it wouldn't be that surprising to see them pour a lot of money into Texas. Uh, it's just a question as to whether or not that'll actually wind up paying off in time for 2018. I, I don't see it happening. I could see Beto losing like 53-47 or something, putting a good scare into, into Cruz. And... Um, terrifying a lot of congressional Republicans into voting against Trump's agenda in the same way that Scott Brown's victory in 2010 uh, scared a lot of Democrats uh, away from Obama's agenda. They, they saw the writing on the wall. Uh, yeah, sure. I, that's still a six-point margin of victory, 53-47. That sounds... I'll, sure, I'll, I'll play ball. That sounds like a reasonable prediction. Um, I, I think that the primary reason why I think that um, Texas and Georgia are different here is with Texas's population being so much larger, it's so much less susceptible to percentage shifts because you have to get a lot more people to change their minds um, or, and to not turn out. It, it's a sort of like if you a 53, 47 race when you've got a hundred people voting versus a hundred thousand is a whole lot different if you will. And you know, Texas and Georgia are significantly different there as well. Um, that's there's a lot of Texas congressmen um, who have safe seats traditionally that I think might be better bets to lose than than Cruz, uh, Culberson yeah. in Houston, as uh, Noah M Horowitz loves to point out, might be a better bet than Peter. Yeah, there there are a few Republican uh, House members in Texas who sit in districts that Hillary Clinton won um, fairly decisively. Uh, John Culberson in Houston. Pete Sessions in Dallas, um, depending on how the re Texas redistricting case goes before the Supreme Court, there may be something around Austin over the fact that um, the city is currently represented by Michael McCall, Roger Williams, and Lamar Smith, none of whom really adequately encapsulates the public opinion of Austin, Texas. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a strong chance that if we get some real redistricting that actually tries to represent Texas, chuckles. Yeah, right. Um, then we might see some more representation. Uh, there's supposed to be something like seven um, Latino majority or Hispanic majority districts along the border. Um, well, we'll heard is as Republicans go, um, you know, pretty moderate. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like his district isn't the worst as they're drawn. It's basically a swing district. Uh, we probably deserve a few more that look like Beto's demographically. Um, of course, Lloyd Dogg has been uh, gerrymandered out of reasonable districts in, in uh, the Austin area before. And um, the, I don't even know if Bacon Strip is the right term anymore for what he is. The section of Interstate 35 he represents, uh, stretching from Austin to San Antonio, is, uh, is quite the uh, constitutional quandary. Uh, We'll see if TX35 ends up uh, ends up being more of Austin in the future or not. But one way or another, Texas is still going to be the district Ted Cruz represents. And uh, Texas um, still is the state that, uh, that elected him. Um, and the state that he won in the, uh, the Republican primary. And, well, people don't like Trump. A whole lot. Uh, if if Cruz can make a convincing campaign saying that you should vote for senators that agree with him, I don't know. 
maybe green eggs and hams isn't the message that everyone wants, but it's it's a message that worked before. It is, and whether or not Beto wins will largely depend on how exactly he messages campaign. I think the only winning argument in Texas is if he tries to distance himself from the National Democratic Party and call himself uh, and call the election a referendum on Trump and try to tie Cruz to Trump however he can, because Trump's not that popular in Texas, and a, a lot of the districts in Texas are more Cruzy than they are Trumpy. Uh, the heavily Republican districts, um, particularly like around the Panhandle, West Texas. Um, Trump didn't do exceptionally well there in the primaries. There's a reason why Texas went so much further towards Hillary Clinton in the general election than people were expecting. It was not quite purple, but almost purple enough to get it out of the safe R zone and Sabado's crystal ball and move it to likely R. Yeah, well, something, something. We all thought Hillary was going to win, right? So all the prognosticators are wrong always, right? Yeah, especially G. Elliott Morris. Just the most wrong all the time. This would work a lot better if you listened to a sh- to our show, wouldn't it? He's been on our show. He's a friend of the pod. Yes. Um, realistically speaking here, if we're talking about which seats in Texas are going to flip, um, I, I'm curious about Hurd's, though. He's the Republican I least want to kick out of Congress in Texas. Culberson is, and Sessions are the races where I think that Democrats should be spending money, and uh, Cruz is the one that's going to get all of our attention unjustly. Does that sound about right? That does sound about right. And it's unfortunate because, I mean, this is the, the consequence of political polarization around the country. Um, the representatives who wind up, and senators who wind up losing are usually the most moderate of their party. Uh, yep. Like, the re- Democrats gained seats in the Senate this go-around um, at the expense of Mark Kirk of Illinois and... Um, Kelly Ayotte of New Hampshire, who were both the members of the Republican coalition who would probably be m- most likely to break with Trump. Yeah, if uh, if Kirk was in the Senate at the expense of Ron Johnson, I, I'm I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that many things would have gone exactly the same. But I don't know. Maybe maybe DeVos is slightly different or something like that. Yeah, I mean. I- it's a good point about Johnson, though, because the value play for elections going forward seems to be to target somebody who's disproportionately conservative or disproportionately liberal for their district. For instance, Republicans are probably going to be better off targeting somebody like Claire McCaskill than somebody like Joe Manchin during the 2018 cycle, both from Republican states, but McCaskill tends to toe the Democratic Party line a little bit more closely. Uh, conversely, Democrats are probably going to have a lot more success going against somebody like Culberson or Sessions than they will going against... Um, yeah, I... I, I or, or Johnson, uh, if you're talking about the Senate, somebody who's more conservative than the average Wisconsin voter. Yeah, the fact that Johnson was able to win running for re-election as a congressional outsider, really, really beautiful tactic. When uh, he was running against Russ Feingold. It's pretty easy to run as an outsider when you're running against Russ Feingold. I won't dispute that. Um said there's still some legislating to do um, before we reelect anyone in 2018. Um, I don't know. The jokes about permanent reelection are fun. Trump seems like he's already running for reelection. Um, Trump's acting like the election never ended. Right. Yeah. Let's be Blaming clear here. Hillary Clinton as if she's Emmanuel Goldstein. Yeah. I don't know. Um, watching uh, Mike Pence speak at APAC uh, is probably one of the more interesting things uh in terms of speeches at policy conferences that i've ever been able to witness uh 
In the sense that Pence continues to act as if this is a normal administration. Well, no, actually, I would say it was it was interesting in terms of Pence acting as if he was basically Spicer, um, telling you what Trump believes without actually talking about any policy. The the loudest cheers from the audience coming to the line, "Make America Great Again." Uh, it's it's stunning almost how uh, you know this permanent election that some pundits and academics predicted is, is upon us. And as such, you know, the amount of time you get to spend actually uh, legislating before you hit the uh, campaign trail is very small. I'm, I'm interested to see how many more days as a percentage uh, Beto O'Rourke is on the House floor. Oh, completely. Yeah, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're, we're 71 days in. One of my big lessons over the past 71 days is uh, it's given me a newfound appreciation for Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, what they were able to accomplish with Democratic majorities in 2009, 2010, mm-hmm. however briefly they had them, um, by just setting a decisive agenda, acting quickly, whipping the party in line. These are all fairly things that we take had taken for granted as just ordinary elements of partisan politics. But Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell have been having a lot of trouble with them. Ryan more so than McConnell. Yeah, no, the the Senate seems like a more moderate and fairly consistent body when people talk about it. We we talk about things when they hit the Senate being dead on arrival because they're 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 too extreme one way or another. Um, of course, the whole having to have sixty votes is a is an interesting case, but. Yeah, you know, the Senate seems like it's almost like a, a predictable thing in some sense. I mean, having 100 people will do that for you versus right. 435. So getting back to legislating, what do you think the next move is here? We, we talked about Gorsuch. We talked about elections and how that's going to affect what Republicans can are going to be able to do. But what are they going to actually try to do is, is the question after the, the failure of the AHCA. Is this tax reform really next on the agenda? Is that going okay? To- let's let's be clear here. I think that Republicans are going to attempt to work on some sort of tax cuts, um, and I think that the uh, CBO scoring is really what's going to make anything feasible one way or another. Um, remember, we do have a a Republican running the Congressional Budget Office one way or another. Uh, that seemed to slip under the radar to some people during the HCA debate. So, I mean, we might get a little bit more generous um, scoring in terms of the amount of economic bounce that we get from tax cuts. In general, the CBO is pretty nonpartisan. Yeah, yeah. I I don't suspect that's going to mean a whole lot. But when we're arguing about this, we're going to see Republicans arguing that, you know, if we cut um, taxes in different forms, we'll see which ones uh, slip through that, you know, their cuts won't um, substantially affect the budget. Or we might see a form of like tax cuts that are only in effect for 10 years so that they just can fit through uh, the uh, the, the uh, Senate rules. Um, but I imagine we're not going to see a whole lot of dramatic tax simplification. I imagine we're not going to see a whole lot of loopholes and cut. I imagine that if, if anything gets passed, it's going to be very simple and probably not really going to do a whole lot other than make sure that some people who already have gobs of money hiding away in their in their vaults aren't paying as much as they already are yeah i think that'll be the interesting thing to follow since i think the the vote on any kind of tax reform package is going to boil down to whether or not republicans are going to be um too afraid of being cast as plutocratic supporting something that's going to probably disproportionately favor the wealthy given 
how Paul Ryan has kind of intimated his um, agenda in the past, uh, or whether Democrats are going to have more trouble being the, the folks who voted against uh, cutting people's taxes. That's or, or moderate Republicans as well. Um, I think that will be the, the same kind of uh, dividing lines that you saw with the, the HCA debate. Uh, and um, it'll, it makes the, the Freedom Caucus, once again, essentially the kingmakers here, because I would think the Freedom Caucus would be more likely to vote against something that doesn't meet 100% of their demands than moderate Republicans would be to do the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, boy, am I excited for the Freedom Caucus to be the most important political body in the United States. I I really don't suspect that we're going to see a whole lot beyond um, a very simple package go through. The, the difference between the tax code and the HCA is, well, Obamacare is something that there's some people who like. No one particularly likes the current tax code. Um, there's no one who really wants to protect it. There's no one whose legacy is at stake here. I mean, we know about Bush tax cuts, but like, that's not really relevant in today's discussion. Uh, people, when they associate the word tax with Obama, probably just associated it with him jacking up taxes indiscriminately, which isn't entirely true, or the Obamacare taxes, which didn't get cut by the HCA, or AHCA. And also which Obama argued weren't taxes until the Supreme Court argued otherwise. True. So, I mean, I really, really doubt here, and we're not even having a conversation as if reform is happening, that actual revenue-neutral reform will happen. You know, when people talk tax reform as opposed to tax cuts, the distinction is supposed to be that tax reform just takes the cuts that happen and balances them with cuts to um, loopholes and incentives in equal measure so that the net effect is that the average person without a good tax lawyer pays less taxes, but the... uh, the CEO with a great lawyer doesn't get to finance his private jet. Um, generally speaking, I'm, I'm a big fan of these sorts of plans. Uh, Democratic Senator Mark Warner has been pushing a, a plan like this kind of quietly for a while, whereby you could cut you know, some of the higher tax levels down into the 15 20% range by wiping away almost all of the incentives and loopholes. And mathematically, it's possible, but considering the fact that both Congress and Senate have a lot of very local constituencies with a lot of very local needs, I strongly doubt that something like that would happen. Yeah, I think it's a little premature to speculate, as we've been doing on um, any kind of tax bill. Are you saying that speculating on something is a bad idea? Um, I I think I am. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. I I think it might be time for me to to leave the pod. Um, But no, it's... just a little early, I think. Um, I mean, we, we've talked about a couple of the different possibilities here and what they might lead to, but until we really know exactly what the form of this tax bill is going to take, it's hard to narrow down which path it's going to go down uh, and whether or not any of this analysis is going to be correct. I, I don't think that I can accept your words there. I think that's a little bit too serious for me, and I think we're going to have to cut ourselves off right there uh, probably before will. this descends into a fist mm-hmm. fight. But but first, um, we should note that House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes uh, has, at this point, largely converged with Jill Stein to the point where um, I'm wondering if he's not just Jill Stein in a mask. Uh, so bringing back our, our previous segment from last semester, um, the, the Nunes update of the week is that the source came from inside the White House. Um, 
which is a, a fun thing to get to report, Devin Nunes' intelligence source, uh, saying that Trump was uh, incidentally wiretapped as a result of the Obama administration collecting uh, information on foreign officials. Um, those sources, which he wanted to keep anonymous, turned out to be his former lawyer, who now works at the White House, and um, some 30-year-old on the NSA who Steve Bannon put there. So, well, thank, I think that thank you, Devin, for becoming a recurring segment. Well, I thank you also for um, finding something to appease me before we fight over the fact that you said speculation is a terrible idea. Uh, I am... Your department is a lie. <sighs> okay, now we're back to where we are. We'll catch you again next week, hopefully with both hosts intact, and hopefully discussing something just a little bit less serious. This podcast was produced by The Daily Texan and hosted by Alexander Chase and Jordan Shenhar. And the music was by Randy Wachtler. Be sure to check back next week for our next episode. And for more news, go to dailytexanonline.com.